This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie DeShal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. The title of my message today, and it will be for the next couple of weeks, in fact, for the next month, we're going to be talking about this. It's called Restore Us, O Lord, Our God, or Restore Us, O Lord God. Restore Us. And, and you know, the 80th Psalm, the Psalm 80, in this year of pay, 5780, the 80th Psalm is about restoration. Restore us, O God. In fact, that's what it says. Restore us, O God. And I felt it was appropriate that we look at what God wants to do in this season. Some of us need to be restored. Some of us need to be restored. And by the way, tonight I'm going to be talking about, uh, you know, the, the, this, 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 this topic of, you know, how God can help you be, be he can be your burden bearer. He can be your, your strength, he can strengthen you. And, and, and you know, uh, the thing that shocks me is how many people are committing suicide today? Some of you know people that have committed suicide. People have come to the end of themselves. And, 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 you know, God wants us to come to the end of ourselves, but not so that we commit suicide, so we turn to him. He says, I will bear your burden. I'll be there for you. But some of you don't know how to get there. You don't know how to get that burden off of you. You don't know how to cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. And so tonight I'll be talking about that. That's going to be an amazing, it'll be just an amazing simple topic, but we'll pick that up this evening at the evening service. And it's not going to rain tonight, right? Turn with me in your Bibles. Everybody have a real Bible? Grab your real Bible. Let me see your real Bibles. Oh, isn't that a beautiful picture? I love real Bibles, amen. If you're listening on uh, the, the podcast or if you're listening uh, on our live stream, get your real Bible out. Get a real Bible. You should always have a real Bible that you can write in. And if you don't have one you can write in, if it's an old family Bible, don't write in that one. But go buy one that you can write in, you can study in. Because it's important that you make this a textbook of life. Turn with me to the 80th Psalm, Psalm 80. And we're going to just read through some of the scriptures here, starting with verses 1 through 7. Psalm 80, verses 1 through 7. It says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Oh, Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry at your people, at your people's prayers? That's an amazing verse. How long will you be angry at your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh amongst themselves. Listen to this. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Then I'd like you just to look at verses 17 and 19, and it says this. But let your hand be upon the one at your right hand, the one whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord, of, o Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Father, I thank you for the reading of the word this morning. I'm asking, Lord, that you would illuminate it to our hearts and minds. That as I speak, that you would cause my lips to impart knowledge. More importantly, Father, that you would have me impart 
your life, that your spirit would teach the church today, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a spirit that could respond. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this text, as you read this whole psalm, as a matter of fact, is uh, a prayer of desperation. It's somebody praying a prayer of desperation. It's a prayer of people who were once used to having God's presence and God's power. And now that power is no longer evident in their lives. It's absent and it's sorely missed. It is the prayer of a man or a woman. It's a prayer of a people. It's a prayer of a nation. A prayer of a church out of touch with God. You know, when I first came to the country of Rhodesia, now more than 40 years ago, I met many men and women who were tough on the outside and were openly against anything to do with God. In fact, it was a, almost a rebellion. It was almost a, a mark of being a man or a mark of being a, a, a part of this country that you were rebellious towards God. I don't like religion, you clappy happers, happy clappers. And it was, there was an attitude, okay? And, uh, but I heard many stories about men who in the heat of a firefight in the war, when they were being mortared, when they were being shot at, they, they, it was said that they either cried out to one of two people and mother couldn't hear. You cry out to mother or God. They called it a foxhole prayer, the kind of prayer that is prayed by someone who's afraid, uncertain, and probably not on the best terms with God. Oh, God, help me to get out of this mess alive, and I will. Anybody ever pray that prayer? I'll be good. I promise you I'll be good. I'll go to church. I promise I'll go to church. I'll even serve on the board of trustees. I'll tithe. Man, man, I'll tithe. I'll even tithe. Man, I'll be a missionary if that's what it takes. Just God help me. Tap your neighbor. I say, I think I know the person that's prayed that prayer a few times. Now, I'm not against praying in crisis, okay? In fact, one of my first children's participation in public prayer was when they were around six years old, and they found themselves in a crisis. He was misbehaving, making a lot of noise in church. So I grabbed him by the shoulder, and I led him out of the Harry Margolis Hall to have a woodshed experience. <laughs> As we were leaving the congregation and going out one of the side doors, my son called out and he says, will you please pray for me? I need prayer right now. <laughs> Anyone who has ever prayed this kind of a prayer that knows that this kind of prayer is more about the desire to be relieved of the pain than it is one of genuine repentance and of restoring the right relationship or the right service to the one you've sinned against. God's people prayed like that. God's people prayed these prayers. They cried out and they prayed. and They knew that their prayers were promises made to be broken and forgotten. Have you ever prayed a prayer that you knew you weren't going to keep? You knew you were going to break this prayer? How many of you have ever prayed the prayer, and even as you're praying, you know you don't mean this? <laughs> Tap your neighbor. 
Say, don't you wish all those people listening by television would know that we're talking about them, not us? <laughs> no, it's all people. It's all of us. See, all throughout the history of Israel, we see this pattern. It's repeated over and over again. The promises are broken. They're forgotten. And, you know, breaking a promise or forgetting your promise or forgetting your prayer, I'm not saying it's like a sinister and definitive choice to be evil or to fight against God. I don't think you're saying, I hate God. I, no, I think it's just one of those foxhole prayers. It's like those kind of prayers that just you pray, but they dry up on the vine. It's forgotten when the dust settles down and we can go back to enjoying life and ignoring God. You all know the, there's a Christmas prayer, or I guess it's a, a poem. And I was playing around, and I thought, "'Twas the beginning of New Year, and all through the church, our hope was all dying. We'd given up on the search. It wasn't so much that Christ wasn't invited, but after 2,000 plus years, we were no longer excited. I read this because we've often been kind of lulled into a sleep by our enemy. We're no longer expecting anything from God, or at least we've given up on our high hopes when it comes to our relationship with God. We've been beaten down, worn down. Things didn't work out the way we thought they would. In paradox to this, in almost contradiction, I found two quotes, and they're unusual, or at least they're from unexpected sources of what's going on in the world, what's going on in our nation here of Zimbabwe, what's going on in the church, what's, what's going on, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, and as I read this, I felt, you know, this speaks to the revival I think we need, in, it's in my heart. So the first is from a guy named L. N. N. Lee Cooper. N. Lee Cooper is the president of the American Bar Association, and he said this, the only effective response to our nation's crime problem is spiritual revival. The American Bar Association, the head of it is saying the only effective response <coughs> to our nation's crime problem is spiritual revival. Then from the most unlikely source, from Norman Lear, who uh, is the guy who gave us Archie and Edith Bunker, he said this, we're in need of a spiritual revival. Here's a Hollywood scriptwriter, and he says, we're in need of a spiritual revival. You know, when I read these things, I'm saying, man, and, I'm, I'm not, and I have to say this, I'm not sure that I'm ready to allow the American Bar Association or a TV sitcom writer uh, to lead me in a prayer for revival. But the fact that these secularists, these people that are probably not even, and I don't want to judge them, but they may not even be born again, but they understand the gravity of the situation that's on the earth today helps me with my point today. As we take up our position, you and I as believers, the Bible says we can come boldly before the throne of God. As we take up our positions to come before the throne, the throne of God, how shallow is our commitment? How frail is our spiritual life? 
Are we like the people of God we see in the Old Testament? Are we like what we read in this verse of Scripture? Sitting up and taking note of the truth that we are not prepared. We're not prepared for Christ to come in a revival, let alone for him to come in his second return. There is a second return of Jesus coming, and it's coming very soon. Oh, I know we've heard that, but that's what the Bible was warned about. It said, be careful lest you become weary. Be careful if you think that his return is never going to come. But I'm telling you, it's coming, and it's very soon. So what, we, what must we do to prepare for his coming? Either in a revival or to come to pick us up. Well, number one, I think we need to have a ready heart. Our hearts need to be ready. Through 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. By the way, keep your finger back there in Psalm 80 because we're going to be coming back there. But here we have in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12, the Bible says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness? Boy, there's a question. Waiting for the hastening, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the God, because of which the elements will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire. There's the question I want to ask. What sort of persons ought we to be? What sort of persons should you and I be? Well, I believe that we should be people that are praying for the return of Jesus. We should be praying for revival. We should be praying to be restored. Praying for restoration. Psalm 80, verses 1 through 3. I told you to go back there. Here we go. Open your Bible. It says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O oh God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Well, what does that mean? What does that verse, leave it up there, because what does that verse mean? You know, what does it mean? Here we see the psalmist saying, and he's praying to God, and he mentions Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Well, now, why would he mention those three tribes? Well, let me explain it to you. According to the description of the tribes wandering in the desert, in the wilderness. After being led out of Egyptian captivity, these were the first three tribes that followed the Ark of the Covenant when they moved. They were the closest to the presence of God. These were the three tribes that God wanted to be near his presence. They were the ones that were close to the Ark of his presence with his people. Asking God to let your face shine points to the glory that would be upon that ark. The ark would have glory on it. And when they'd lift the ark or when, the, when God wanted to move, it says that the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud would begin to move. And they would begin to move with the pillar. They'd lift that ark and they'd begin to move. And the tribes that followed, these tribes that were close, could behold the glory, behold the presence. His God's face shining upon them speaks to the glory of God in the ark and it points to the mercy seat. God's presence was above what's called the mercy seat. Two cherubim 
and a place where they would sprinkle the blood of sacrifice and that blood would cover men's sins, atone for men's sins for one year. You could call upon that atoning force. And every year the high priest would go in and cover men's sins. Come to save us is a cry for redemption. It's a cry for the gift of life. Save us. We in the church, both individually and corporately today, must pray for that kind of revival. You know, there's kind of a buzzword in the marketplace today that's talking about things have to be viable. Viable. Is this viable? Is it sustainable? Is it viable? And, uh, you know, I love to talk to people, but what, is, what does viable mean? Well, the word viable actually means it's able to live. Is this thing able to live? Can it live on its own? Unlike our government that can't live on its own. It can't. You cannot run health care and not charge for it. You can't give free health care, free education, free everything. Somebody's got to pay for it. It's not viable. It's dead. And that's why our whole system is dead. But God doesn't want us to be unviable. He wants us to be viable. Able to live. So we need a viable touch from God if we're going to again live as his people. The problem with not living as his people is that we end up kind of living as some kind of obscene or obscure caricature, caricature of divine glory. In other words, a corrupted glory. So much of what we call the glory of God is just man pumping things up or, or divinations or Listen, when God's glory shows up, let me tell you something. And I've been in his glory. I love his glory. I love his presence. When his glory shows up, and every Sunday, I thank God he shows up here when we worship him. But God says, I want you to behold my glory. And here's these people are crying out. Here's my question for you. Do you pray for revival? Do you pray for restoration? Well, maybe my question should be changed. Will you pray for revival? Will you pray for a restoration? You see, we ought to be people, first of all, praying with a repentant heart. Repentance is us humbling ourselves. Repentance is us admitting where we really are. Psalm 80 verses 4 through 7 says, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry at your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. You know, and then he goes on and says, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your, shine, let your face shine that we may be saved. Can, can I tell you something? I've been through seasons in the church, even in this country, but around, throughout time. And there's seasons where the church is powerful, where what's going on in the church is awesome. And then there seems to be seasons where the church becomes the scorn of the nation. Either through our tepidness, our inability to be white hot for God, or we became the masters of the cliche instead of reality. We lost our fire 
and therefore we don't stand like we ought to. There's, there's lots of reasons why the church, its prayers aren't answered. Just like Israel, you've made us the mock, we're being mocked, God. We're being mocked by people. You know, I am afraid to say this, but, you know, many of our politicians mock the church today. They don't take us seriously. And many of our pastors and ministers have made it that way. They tried to be politicians and out-politician the politicians. How many of you know that God never called us to be politicians? God called us to be speakers of truth, living a righteous and a holy life, holding our nation accountability on the basis of the word of God. But when we try to play on the wrong playing field, we lose our voice. The church is not a club. The government does not define the church. The church is a government. We are our own government. We represent the government of Almighty God. And the governments of this world shall become the government of God if they're going to be successful. Without that, they will do exactly what our government does. Utterly fail. They cannot succeed. It cannot succeed because the foundation is corrupt. So they mock us instead. The Bible warned that this would happen. It said all the kings of the earth would rise up against Christ, against God. And they will. And the more righteous you and I become, the more we live a holy life, the more we refuse to bow our knee, the more it will expose darkness. And there's going to be a great divide. You'll find yourself on one of the two sides of that divide, a goat or a sheep, light or darkness. But you'll get to choose that. And I'm, for me in my house, I'm choosing light, I'm choosing Christ, I'm choosing righteousness, and I want to live that way. Does that make me perfect? No. Does it make me the judge? No. Restore us, he cries out. But listen, this is the second time he says, restore us. And it's repeated. But notice, it's taken further this time. The psalmist said in verse 3, restore us, O God. In this verse, he says, restore us, O God, of hosts. See, the God of hosts is more identifiable as the God who's above, the God of the angels, of all angelic beings. And we know as believers that we have angelic intervention in our lives if we acknowledge it. See, some of you don't even know that you have angels that that can work on your behalf. You don't even understand that angels move on the behalf of the words you speak. They move when you speak God's word into a situation. That unlocks something supernatural. Angelic beings go to work on your behalf. But you'll understand the converse of that when you go to a witch doctor and he'll speak words and incantations, curses, and you'll see fallen angels, demons, fallen angels go to work on your behalf. Ooh, how powerful. Why would you traffic in the dark side when you could have the God of light who will uphold the word of his righteousness? Just tap your neighbor and say, I think he's preaching now. Tell your other neighbor, I think his preaching's better than your amening today. So what does it mean to restore? What does it mean to restore? Well, 
I don't know, maybe I can tell you what it's not. Is, 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 is this psalmist looking back at his former days? Is he, uh, does he have his nostalgia in full gear for God to make things like they used to be? You know, I don't think, it's, I don't think that's true. I don't think he's looking for things to be like they used to be. Let me tell you why. I speak in, I've spoken to many people in many, many churches. And I've spoken to many pastors. And uh, I've traveled all over the world. And I meet church folk everywhere I go. Good people. God-fearing people. But there seems to be an epidemic among people, certainly of a certain age, that makes us look back with a wistful eye, longing for the days when. The days, do you remember when? Do you remember when? We have a lot of people in Zimbabwe that are when-we's. We have a lot of people in the church. Do you remember when we, when, when God? And, and, and you know, let me, let me, can I say something to you? Whether you're a when-we that is still trying to be a Rhodesian or uh, you're trying to be a Zimbabwean from the 80s or the 90s. Common sense tells us, or, or whether you're a when we in the church even, common sense tells us that we cannot rewind the clock. It is impossible. Not only is it impossible, it's inadvisable, and therefore it's inappropriate to even wish to do so. Just because you want it like it used to be doesn't mean God would bless it if we tried to do it that way. You see, the psalmist is not nostalgic. He's saying, here's what he's saying. Lord, you turn us away from what we would do. Lord, you restore us to what you want us to be. Not what I think it should be. Not what I want it to be or, or the way it used to be. Lord, you do for me what you want. You make us be what you want us to be and we'll be it. How many times have you and I, and even from this pulpit, the story of the prodigal son has been spoken and we've reflected on that story. I want you to recall something. The father didn't go after the son when he was in a faraway land. Where he was squandering his inheritance. Where he ended up eating the food that he was feeding the pigs. He waited. And when the son finally came to his senses. The Bible says he, the son came to himself and he made his way home to the father. This is when the father ran to the son. This is when he put a robe on his back, a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, said, let's have a party. You see, restoration or restoring has to do with repenting, turning from what we are doing, turning from the things that sadden the Father's heart and turning to doing the Father's will. Amen. Then his face shines upon us. When we turn to him, his face shines upon us. So what does this look like? What, what does this look like in the church? Well, it, it might look like us turning away from our desires, our wishes, and beginning to pray with an open repentance towards God. Being willing 
to hear what God's will is in our life. And spreading the word of his cross, the message of his redemption. As individuals, as families, as congregations that are, you know, I notice that we're constantly in turmoil over our relationships, either with various family members or fellow church members. But what would happen if we were to display repentance or humility towards each other? But when we fail to do so, when we fail to show repentance, when we fail to show humility, we're certainly not ready for the face of God or to face him. In fact, we're only, like my son, ready for the woodshed. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But see, when we wake up to the barrenness of our far country. And by the way, you don't have to go out of the country to be in a far country. You could be sitting right here in this service today and be in a far country. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Just tap your neighbor and say, you know who he's talking about. But when we wake up from the barrenness of our far country, experience and make our way home, that's when the Father's face shines. That's when he brings out the royal robe. That's when he gives us the signet ring. That's when he puts shoes on your feet. That's when he says, my son. That's when he runs towards you and says, I've just been waiting for you to turn and genuinely come home. And that's when the party starts. So we ought to be a people also praying with righteousness. And this is the point I want to close on today. And this is really my main point today. Uh, and I'll belabor it for just a moment. But I want you to grasp this. In Psalm 80, verses 17 through 19, I want you to read what it says. It says, but let your hand be upon the one at your right hand. That's an important word. The one at your right hand. The, the hand of righteousness. The one whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life and we will call on your name. Restore us, O God, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Who is the one at the right hand of God? There are some scholars that will say it's this or that, but I believe that it's Jesus who's at the right hand of the Father. I believe Jesus is the righteous one. And to pray with righteousness for you and I is a real tall order. Would you agree? How many of you kind of tremble at the thought of praying with righteousness? But here's what it literally means. It literally means that when we prayed, we pray as one that is covered. It means that we are in right standing with God. Remember the mercy seat? There had to be blood on that mercy seat or God would have smitten everybody. There had to have been something that covered the righteousness of God and satisfied righteousness so that he wouldn't kill all sinful people. It means that we're in standing with him. Now, if you're up on your theology, you're going to find out that that's impossible without the blood of Jesus, without Jesus himself. A layman's definition of righteousness is simply this, right standing with God, being in right standing with God. See, righteousness, now listen very carefully. Righteousness is the condition 
of being in right relationship with the Lord. This can only happen through total faith and dependence upon Christ. There is no other way and there is nothing that we can add to our faith to obtain right relationship with the Lord. Look at Romans 11. Romans 11.6 says this. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Does that make sense to you? Here's what he's saying. He says our righteousness is by grace, not by works. Because if it was works, it would no longer be grace. See, to many, the word righteousness has become a religious cliche. And it's lost its meaning. Many believers are confused about what it means and how one receives righteousness. Righteousness is, the word righteous and the word righteousness appear 540 times in 520 verses in the Bible. On the other hand, faith, faithfulness, and faithful are only used 348 times in 328 verses. This means that there are about one and a half times as many scriptures about righteousness as there are about faith. This indicates that righteousness is very important to us. Tap your neighbor and say, righteousness must be pretty important. Now, hang in there with me. I'm going to close out here. This could change your life. Most believers don't know how to become right in the sight of God. Many believe that it is through our actions that we become righteous. Some even go to the extent of going on a 40-day fast so they can become righteous. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is a relationship between our actions and our right standing with God. I, I won't contest that. But we are not made righteous by what we do. Righteousness is a gift that comes from the Lord to those who accept what Jesus has done for them by faith. A gift that comes from the Lord to those who accept what Jesus has done for them by faith. Listen to Romans 5.17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Guys, that is such a powerful verse. I, I would take that home and memorize it. One man's act of righteousness leads to justification just as one man's trespass led all men into bondage. Jesus paid it all. He is righteous. You see, the gift, listen to this. If you don't hear anything, hear this today. The gift of salvation produces a change of heart 
that in turn changes our actions. Actions cannot change our hearts. Let me explain this to you. You and I, through the sin of Adam, were born into sin. You and I had sin roots and were sin trees. Today, we have psychiatrists and psychologists climbing up in many people's trees. And I'm all for psychiatrists and psychologists. I'm not against them. But sometimes they're trying to prune this tree to make it look like something besides a sin tree. But when the roots produce what's, what they really are, what do they produce? Sin. Look, I have a beautiful, beautiful lemon tree in my backyard. It's got lemon roots. And I can go back there and I can prune that thing down to one little stalk. But can I tell you something? I can have you come over and say, look at my apple tree. It's a beautiful apple tree. And the untrained eye couldn't tell what it was because it's just a little stalk. But when that thing comes back to life and begins to produce, it's not going to produce apples no matter how much I call it an apple tree. It's going to produce what's in the root. Are you listening? You see, the Pharisees always clashed with Jesus because they believed that their righteousness was determined by their actions. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught exactly the opposite of what the Pharisees believed. He goes on in Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26, he says, Woe to you scribes, woe to you Pharisees. You hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within you are full of extortion and excess. How blind, Pharisee, thou blind Pharisee, clean first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. It is, listen to this, it is through a changed heart that our actions change. The heart is the issue. Actions are only indications of what's in our hearts. See, modern-day Christianity often puts an emphasis on actions instead of the heart. We look at somebody and we judge them by what we see. We judge them by an action. This is often reflected in Christians. Sometimes we have excessive efforts to legislate change in people's actions. You're not a Christian if you... Wait, wait, wait. Excuse me. Let me tell you something. My lemon tree is always going to produce lemons. But it's the gospel that has the power of God to change a person. Nothing else. The gospel changes hearts. Not my judgment. Not my ability to judge what you're doing or not doing. I'm not in the seat of judgment. Once hearts are changed, actions changed. You see, here's what happened to you. When you received Jesus, he replaced the root system with love roots. And I'll show you how significant it is. In Christianity, when we 
we get what we believe, not justice. Some of you want justice. The Bible says, as Christians, we get what we believe. We sometimes call for justice, but that's not what we need. The Bible says in Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On him. You know, I'm always grateful to the, the Lord. He always compares us to dumb sheep. You know why I like that? Because he says, you're like dumb sheep that just lost your way. Instead of some rebellious animal that is willfully trying to destroy God and his reputation. And, his, and reject his instruction. One of the characteristics of sheep is, and I think it's especially applicable, applicable here, is that they have a herd mentality. Sheep follow each other. They'll just, you know, they'll literally jump off a cliff to their death if, that, if that's what the rest of the herd is doing. How similar is our carnal man to this? The Bible says, for all have sinned. And all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous. No, not one. Now listen to this. The wonderful plan of salvation is that those of us who put our faith in Jesus and what he did for us, we get what he deserves. On the other hand, those who don't put their total faith in Christ will ultimately get what they deserve. Religion has kind of subtly taught people that they should trust in their own goodness instead of God's. This will never work. Some of us boast about how many hours we spend in prayer and how we never miss church. Now, I believe it's important to pray, and I believe it's important not to forsake the self, or forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. But it's not through these acts that you become holy. It's not through these acts that you become righteous. You see, we have to depend on God's righteousness, which is a gift which we receive from God through faith in order for us to live a victorious life. Our own righteousness falls far short of God's righteousness. And no human being can attain righteousness through their own works. You can fast for 40 days. You can have a prayer chain of 10 million people praying for you. And you can have all the pastors, the bishops, and the prophets, and half their wives praying for you. They're praying for your righteousness, but you'll never be made righteous. Isaiah 64, verse 4, and I'm almost done, says this. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Now, this verse refers to our righteousness or our righteousnesses as filthy rags. It refers, and, and you know what those are? They're menstrual pads. That's what it means. It refers to our self-righteousness. He says, you being self-righteous is a stench in my nostrils. All that we do on our own to obtain right standing with the Lord is grossly inadequate. 
when we come to Jesus and we receive his salvation, then we're given his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ, in him. Jesus became our righteousness. That's why the new birth is so important. What is the new birth? Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The new birth or salvation, listen, doesn't produce a changed life. It produces an exchanged life. See, some of you want to just change your life. I just want to be a better person. Some religion teaches you just got to be better. You got to, if you could be good enough, you wouldn't need Jesus. God doesn't want you to change. He wants you to exchange your sinful life for his righteous life. Your lemon tree roots for his love roots. Your sin roots for love roots. He says, I'll change you. I'll exchange my life for your life. I'll exchange your debts for my prosperity and blessing. It's an exchange, not a change. The Lord doesn't make our flesh wise and righteous and sanctified or redeemed. Instead, he becomes our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Do you see the difference? You see, the Christian life is not just difficult to live. It's impossible to live through our own ability. You can't live this life by trying to be good enough. You can't earn it. It's only when we cease to operate in our own carnal selves and let Jesus live through us, that's when we can obtain the victory. Understand, it's not our righteousness which is in play here. It's the righteousness of Christ. We receive the righteousness of Christ that he gives to us when we accept him as our savior. Understand, our, our righteousness is like filthy rags, our self-righteousness. Praying with righteousness is praying in the name of Jesus. Praying the same way Jesus would pray, resolving against sin, never to go back away from the Father ever again. The psalmist said, Lord, turn us away from our sin and we'll never go back to it. Not like every other time before, God. Not like the time before. We will worship you. We'll worship you only. Can we be honest here? And I'll close. You know, and I do too, that what I'm talking about isn't possible. We are sinners. And sinners sin. Even if we could put sin aside for a few moments, it wouldn't be long and we'd be back in our sin again. See, our righteousness fades. And that's why praying in righteousness is a matter of trusting completely in what he has done for us on the cross, not what we're doing. Look one last time at the verse in Psalm 80, the 18th verse. He says, give us life and we will call upon your name. 
See, that's what Jesus does. Jesus gives us life. Jesus gives us life. He helps us turn in repentance. He, asks, he helps us to ask for true restoration, for true revival. Jesus comes when we do, when we turn from our wicked ways, when we repent and turn towards him. He comes. The Father smiles and his face shines on us. And that's what he desires to do for you and for me. He said so. Look at Numbers chapter 6. This is my last verse. Verses 22 to 27. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus shall you bless the Israelites. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and to keep you, to make his face shine upon you, to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. He puts his name on us and he blesses us. Here's my question today. Is his name on you? Are you identified with the name of Jesus? Are you born again? Have you received Christ? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Are you righteous in Christ? Or are you still trying to be good enough? Because it's impossible to be good enough. But when you make the exchange, when you say, I repent, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to live this way anymore. And you leave the faraway land and you come and you turn towards God with a repentant heart. He says he lets his face shine upon you. He blesses you. And he'll take your sin roots and he'll make an exchange and give you love roots. He'll take your sinful life, your broken life, your terrible life. He says, I'll give you newness of life in Christ Jesus. If you're tired of trying to live and be that holy, righteous person on your own, and you say, God, today I want to yield to the righteousness of God in Christ. I want to be hidden in Christ. I want to be like Christ. Would you stand? Just stand. Say, that's what I want to be. I want to be like Christ. I want to be hidden in Christ. My righteousness, if you want to confess it today, my righteousness is not my own. I'm righteous in Him. I'm righteous in Him. Turn to us, O God. Let your face shine upon us. Restore us, O God. Restore us. Say that out loud. Say, restore us, O Lord God. Let your face shine upon us. Say it again. Restore us, O Lord God. God of hosts. Let your face shine upon us. Wow, 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 wow. Amen? Let's close. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.